0: If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to John chapter 3. Um, you'll find the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And this morning, we continue our study of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. This is our fourth week here. We'll hopefully finish it next week. And when I consider what to preach on um, around particular holidays, special Sundays, Sometimes I'll consider changing, doing something standalone, but the more I thought about it, the, the text before us, we're going to look primarily at John three sixteen to 18, is the central meaning of Christmas. It speaks of God's gift to the world and helps us make sense of the baby in the manger. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ take on flesh? Why did he pitch his tent among us? Our text this morning tells us. So I'd like to begin by reading John chapter 2, 23, all the way through 321, which I've argued is one unit. <clears throat> Let me put my reading glasses on. Ah. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Lord God, as we consider your gift of love, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand the significance, your divine purpose in sending your son, that we might receive him rightly for who he is that we might not perish but have everlasting life. So, Lord, I pray that you would um, open blind eyes, unstop deaf ears, birth life by your Spirit, gift faith. In Jesus' name, amen. A familiar passage, and again, familiarity has the danger of tricking us into thinking we understand it. Probably the, the second most familiar Bible passage in our culture. Twenty years ago, I would have said it was the first most familiar, but I'm guessing Judge Knot has overtaken it in the cultural vernacular. But this is a close second, and you'll see John 3:16 written on signs and logos at sporting events. And it's because of, in this passage, the simplicity, the clarity of God's purpose in salvation, his gospel message, is, is plainly explained. Now, before we get to this, I've got to set it in its context. You'll notice we started reading at the end of chapter 2, because at the end of chapter 2, John sets up this encounter. We hear about people who see signs that Jesus works, and they believe in his name. And strangely, surprisingly, Jesus does not entrust himself to them. And we considered how in a gospel written that we might believe a gospel emphasizing faith and faith alone for salvation, how strange it is to read those words at the end of chapter 2. And then I would argue that John gives us the encounter with Nicodemus to help demonstrate that. And we see here's a man who shows up who's seen signs. And he believes some things about Jesus. He believes he's a teacher. He believes he's from God. He believes God is with him. That's all good. That's all orthodox. It's just not enough. And we further saw that as Jesus and Nicodemus talk, there's a, there's a pattern. Nicodemus says something, and then Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you. Then Nicodemus says something again, and in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you. Nicodemus' final utterance is in um, verse ooh dear, 10. Wow, I lost my place here. Nine. Thank you, Jim. Good grief. Okay, in verse 9, how can these things be? And then he drops out of the text. In every one of his utterances, his his talking gets less and less. He he speaks the most in his opening salvo. He's a little pompous. We know. He's He's a Pharisee, which means he's very religiously advanced. He's a ruler of the people, which means he's got secular clout and power. And he's the teacher or a teacher in Israel. If, if there's somebody who's got a shot at rightly understanding who Jesus is, if there's somebody whose God's favor would shine upon, surely this is the man. And he shows up, and his opening statement, I think, implies some sort of question. Who, who are you? Who, who, who has God sent to us? And Jesus challenges him. This is because at the end of chapter 2, he knows what's in man. If you thought Jesus' response to Nicodemus was a little blunt... He knows what Nicodemus needs to hear. He knows what ails him. And Nicodemus, make no mistake, is an unbeliever here. We're told that plainly in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you, and it's you all there, Nicodemus, and I believe these, this group of people who, who believed in his name because they saw signs, possibly even the Pharisees, you all do not receive Our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, make no mistake, Nicodemus comes to faith. And because we know that eventually he's going to care for the body of Jesus after the crucifixion, because we know he publicly comes forward as a disciple, we can sometimes read that back into here. No, no, Nicodemus is showing up overestimating his own ability to understand truth. And so Jesus pushes back. Basically, in essence, St. Nicodemus, what makes you think you're prepared to recognize and see and understand what God is doing? What makes you think you have clear sight? And he demands that, despite all of Nicodemus' accomplishments and advancement, he needs something he's powerless over. He needs a birth from God. He needs the Spirit of God to birth him and cleanse him. And Nicodemus at first mistakes this, thinks Jesus is talking about natural birth. Jesus clarifies, no, no, what's born of flesh is flesh, what's born of spirit is spirit. And then, as Nicodemus understands what Jesus is saying, he, he, he does. How, how can this be the case? How can entrance and sight into the kingdom of God depend upon a work of God's spirit that I'm powerless to make happen? And Jesus rebukes him. You're the teacher of Israel, you don't understand this? Up to this point, Jesus has been teaching things taught in the Old Testament. Most notably, Ezekiel 36, where God promises to send his spirit and cleanse his people and give them hearts of flesh and cleanse them with waters, so where water and spirit combine with birth imagery. Well, Nicodemus is silent. Good for him. And the master takes center stage, and Jesus then lays out his credentials. See, part of the problem is Nicodemus has confessed that Jesus is from God, God is with him, and yet he does not receive Jesus' testimony. He feels free to weigh it and evaluate it. And so Jesus lays out his credentials. I'm, I'm from heaven, he says. You think I'm from God? Let me, I, I am from God. No one's gone into heaven except the Son of Man. I'm, I'm the only person on planet Earth who's been to heaven speaking of these heavenly things. And then... He, he alludes to an incident in Numbers where the people sinned, they rebelled, they grumbled, and God provided the way of deliverance in a bronze serpent on a pole that was lifted up. And Jesus says, as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, John 3.16 begins with a four. The, part of the reason why I've walked through this is Sixteen is elaborating the imagery of the bronze serpent, and and the the motif of belief or faith. The English words are different, but in Greek, it's it's, it's one word group dominate this section, and so we're going to look at this in three points. In three points, um, verses sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen. One point, a verse. Before I go any further, if you've got a red-letter Bible, I'm guessing your section here is in red letters. It's it's entirely possible Jesus is still speaking. It's also possible that John the Gospel writer is commenting on verse 14. It, It doesn't radically change the meaning of what's going on, but it's not entirely certain. The commentators are kind of divided over, is this John the Gospel writer's commentary? On what Jesus has just said, or is this Jesus further elaborating? It's, it's primarily the fact that monogenes, one and only son, is really unique to John. It's never found on Jesus' lips anywhere else. And so it's not clear. But anyway, let's begin by looking at the amazing gift of God's love. The amazing gift of God's love. These are so familiar, these verses, and yet what John is stressing is wonderful and amazing. Let's just look at the first clause. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now this four is linking back to Christ being lifted up, his crucifixion. Uh, And so right out of the gate here, we, we get that he's come to die. He's come to be lifted up. I don't think Nicodemus put that together, but I think John expects the gospel readers to have already put that together. And this purpose of Christ coming to die was not his own idea. It's actually rooted and linked into the plan and purpose of God is what we learn here. So verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for God. So, loved. so verses 14 and 15 is an expression of the Father's love. Understand that the incarnation, Christmas Day, what we see in that manger is a Trinitarian work. The son accomplishes the father's plan, but all of this is rooted back to the father's love. And that for God so loved the world, the, the Greek's a little more clear. Literally is in this way, in this manner, this is how God loved the world. In other words, we're to see in what way. And you might think of a number of ways we can show love. God showed love by giving his son. And and the emphasis here against the world, because the word world, cosmos, can be used a number of ways. It can sometimes be a big space. In in John's gospel, the emphasis here is not the vastness of the world, as though God's love is expansive, which it is, but rather the darkness, the rebellion, the evil. Look back in chapter 1, at verse 9 and 10. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. The emphasis here: the world's rejection. And look at where our passage picks up for next week in verse nineteen. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light. So when John uses this term world, God's love for the world, the emphasis is on a dark, evil, rebellious, wicked place where people love their evil deeds, and they hate the light. They scatter like cockroaches. That, that's the quality. So what's, what's being stressed is the intensity of God's love. That... God would love such an undeserving people. That God would love in such a way. In this way, God loved the world. That he sent his son for people who would crucify him. That, that's the emphasis. The, in, the magnitude, the intensity, the, the size that overcomes such obstacles. The world's utterly undeservedness and God's love triumphing over. In this way, God loved the world. I mentioned last night that probably the hallmark of Christmas, pardon the pun, is gift-giving. At least it is now. It's changed throughout the years. But in recent years, gift-giving is probably the central um, family cultural activity. And it's probably rooted back to the the We Three Kings of Orientar. But what we learn in John 3.16 is be prior to the magi, the wise men bringing gifts. We are to understand that the the baby in the manger is God's gift to us. The amazing gift of God's love. For God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, in this manner. This is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son. Absolutely breathtaking. I do not believe I would give up any one of my children for my enemies. I I pray and hope the Lord would never test me in such a way, but the, the thought that you would freely give not just any son, but your firstborn, your special, your unique, one-of-a-kind son. This is how God loved the dark, evil, rebellious, unbelieving world filled with people like you and me. He loved the world in this way that he gave his unique, special, one-of-a-kind son. What a gift. This this child in the manger is God's gift to us. He gave His only son. Two points here I want to note. One, God's love is demonstrated in action. God's love is demonstrated in action. Oftentimes, when we think of love, we think of intensity of emotion. And I think intense emotion accompanies love, but oftentimes we can abstract it from doing anything. So we convince ourselves because we feel bad for poor people in other places that we love them. We do nothing, we feel bad. Biblically, love is always generating action and activity. God loved, and the love that God had for the world caused him to give, caused him to do something. It's, it's not the idea that fundamentally God is sitting up in heaven feeling things. I do believe he is feeling things. But rather, the intensity, the grandness of his love is seen in the gift he gave. And he gave point to his best and beloved, best and beloved. John emphasized that back in chapter 1 again. Uh, so much of John's gospel is set up in the prologue. Look at, uh, look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that, that term monogenes. Translate, I think, of the King James, only begotten. I think it's better understood to be unique, one of a kind, special. It's the same term used for Isaac in Hebrews 11. And Isaac, of course, wasn't Abram's only son, he had Ishmael. Rather, he was the son of promise. He was the special son. He was the unique son. And so Jesus' glory is seen here is, is like that, like a father was a special, one of a kind son. The father gave his son. He didn't give his son for his friends. He didn't give his son for his worshipers, for his faithful creation. He he gave his son for the sinful, darkness-loving, rebellious world. What an amazing love is this? What a gift is this? God's love is demonstrated in action. And, and I think the only way we can explain this is what John says in one of his epistles in 1 John, um, John 4.16. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. That's the, that's the only explanation for such magnitude and intensity of love. Love is at the center of God's being, comes out naturally from him, and he loves in this way, that he gave his only son. And he gave his son with a purpose, point C. And again, this is where we need clarity. God loved the world in this amazing way. He gave his son, but he didn't just love the world and give him a free pardon and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to, I welcome everyone in and it doesn't matter what you do. He gave his son, but the focus here narrows. Our English Bible says that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the the Greek is way more specific. I've heard people preach this passage before, and whosoever, as if there's this question mark and amorphous and plug your name in, there's some truth to that, but really the, the Greek is each one who is believing. Each one who is believing. And the point is God gave his son for individuals. He gave his son for believing ones, each and every believing one. At this point, the benefit of Christ's incarnation is limited to a group labeled the believing ones, the ones who believe, each and every one of them. So this broad gift for the dark, evil-loving world narrows now. He gave his son, he loved the world in this way, that... Each and one who believes. So first, salvation is individual. We get this. We're in a very individualistic culture. But I think for Nicodemus and the Jews of his day, this might be more of a stretch. Um, God works and he has worked with nations. But when it comes to salvation, forgiveness of sins, it is individual. No one can believe for you. Your parents' faith is not your faith unless you exercise faith. Salvation is individual Next, we see that salvation is by faith alone. The only condition here is be believing. That's present, it's active, it's indicative, it's ongoing. But if you are believing what God has said, if you are believing and trusting in his son, if you are, like we looked at last week, looking to the son of man, lifted up and saying, yes, that's a fitting punishment for my sin. That's what I deserve. I deserve to be crucified, and I'm trusting that he was crucified in my place. On that basis, and on that basis alone, plus or minus nothing, God forgives He grants life, salvation by faith alone, and finally, we see how John defines salvation, and again, this is I think we 're all on the same page here, but some uh, more liberal theologians want to define salvation is, is, is freedom or as um, escaping tyranny or all sorts of Notions here, it's in having a life and not perishing. This is fundamentally what God's concern is. It's referencing our greatest need. Your and my greatest need is not more self esteem. Your and my greatest need is not purpose in our life. These aren't necessarily bad things, it's just not categorically not our greatest need. Your and my greatest need is that apart from this gift of God, you and I will surely perish be destroyed, come to nothing, be eradicated. And God sent his son so that each and everyone who is believing in him would not perish but have life, eternal life. And it's heaven, not future-looking only. In John's gospel, Jesus is insistent the life he offers is available now. It's, not, it's saying something more than when you die, you won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. It, it is saying that. Jesus is talking and insisting about a life that is possessed now. Salvation is having eternal life. Let me just, let me just read some of these passages to, to emphasize this point. John 5.40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 6.40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. John ten ten. the thief comes only to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 17, Jesus high priestly prayer begins this way. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, father, the hour has come glorify your son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. See, that's the sense in which you and I can have eternal life now. Eternal life begins when you know the living God through Jesus Christ. That's that's the definition of life. You are in a relationship by faith To the living God, whom you call Father, and he calls you his child, that is the definition of life. And that is available now, this instant, not just something further off in the future. So this salvation is individual. This salvation is by faith alone. And this salvation is defined as having eternal life or negatively not perishing. He'll give us some more clarity on the salvation in verse 18. But next, let's move on to verse 17. We begin verse 17 with another four statement. Clarifying, explaining, unpacking this. This, this truth is simple, but it's profound. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. So we go from God, the amazing gift of God's love to the saving purpose of God's love. And what John does here in, in verse 17 is further clarify the, the father's intent. And first he says it negatively God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now that's, that may seem like an odd statement. It's almost as if John is anticipating someone saying, Well, why did you send your son? To condemn everyone? And John is saying, absolutely not. Now, you might ask, why would somebody say that? Well, for one, out of all the Old Testament prophets, the Lord Jesus talks about hell and judgment and the wrath of God to come more than anyone. The clearest, most consistent teachings of judgment and the wrath of God are found in our Savior's lips. But more to the point, we'll see in verse 18, the very advent of his coming, like light, illuminates and reveals those around him. It galvanizes. Um, Heat, by its nature, can melt or harden. And Jesus, as light coming into this world, galvanizes people. So that Pharisees and Jews will cry out at the end of this gospel, We have no king but Caesar. Good grief. How How do you get the Jews to say something like that? Well, the light of Christ galvanizes them in their intensity of their hatred. Their sin is revealed, comes to the boiling point. But that's not fundamentally why God sent his son. It's a byproduct, but it's not the purpose. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So point one, Jesus entered into this dark and hostile world. That that may seem obvious, but this is linking back to chapter 1, verse 14. The Incarnation. In, in one five we read there was a man sent from God. God the Father's been sending people. And now we learn God sent his son into the world. When, when did he do that? But we celebrate at Christmas, at the Incarnation. He writes about it this way in chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, that's when the Father sent his son into the world. Jesus entered into this dark and hostile world, which is where this section will finish up next week, verses 19 to 21. And Jesus' mission was not one of condemnation. Jesus is emphatic on this point as well. Listen to John 12, um, 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So, so we must understand the incarnation is fundamentally a rescue mission, a salvation mission. And now we say positively, not for condemnation, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Two, two points here. First, Jesus is not just a savior for Israel. Jesus is, and again, this this is this is common for us. I'm guessing most of us in this room are Gentiles, Goim. But for Nicodemus and the Jews of Jesus' day, this, this would be news. This point is more echoed later in chapter 4, where the Samaritan town cries out, they said to the woman in 442, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And when it's put on the lips of a Samaritan, a non-Israelite, The emphasis of world there, transnational, is is clear. God God did not just send Jesus to save Israel. He he provided a savior for the world. Provided the savior for the world. Point two, God freely offers salvation to all men. God freely offers salvation to all men. Now, Jesus is clear that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I believe that, but he's equally clear. No one who comes to him will be turned away. And, and the, the, the glorious reality is this. For those, for anyone who wants salvation, who wants the forgiveness of sins, who wants life, there is a Savior for them. Any tribe, any nation, any tongue, there is no one who wants to come to Christ who will be turned away. There's no one who, who comes to him by faith who will find the grace insufficient, the atonement unfinished. Rather, he is the redeemer for the world. Listen to how John puts it in 1 John 2 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the savior of the world. He's not a regional savior. He's not a national Savior. He is a global Savior. Now, we've seen only those who are believing will be saved, but all, each and everyone believing, wherever men, women, children are believing ones in him, they will not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's God's purpose, his plan, his promise in sending his son. Finally, verse 18, the resulting division of God's love. The resulting division of God's love. And I think part of the reason why he he stressed the point that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world is how the passage is going to end in verses 19 to 21. The the, the contrast, let's just jump there real fast, we'll be looking at this in more in depth next week, is here is the expression of God's amazing love. He, He gives his one and only unique special son in love for his enemies reject him And how does the world respond? This is the judgment. Verse 19. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. God sent his son as light into the world and the darkness hated it. And on that basis, the darkness is more greatly condemned. There is a sense in which sending the Son of God into the world raises the stakes for unbelievers, increases their guilt and culpability. That is not God's primary intention, but it's a necessary byproduct. When you shine a flashlight in a dark room, the divisions between what is lit and what is dark is clear and obvious. The resulting division of God's love. Now he reiterates the positive statement: Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, is not judged, and and the judgment here is clearly a negative judgment. And now we get the first notion or, or clarity given that this life, and this not perishing, is tied to guilt. I mean, we know that, but the text here for the first time brings that out. We we learn that each believer's sins are fully forgiven. That same whoever's the one believing in him. It's still individual. We're still dealing with individual people. Each and every one who is believing in him is not condemned. Which means his sins are forgiven. This is the, this is the note of the apostles' preaching of the gospel in Acts. Acts 10.43. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And now also linking this back to verse 14 and 15, this not receiving condemnation is only possible through the Son of Man being lifted up. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system is laying the way for this idea. How how do guilty people have their sins passed over? How do guilty people not get judged on the spot? Someone or something has to die. There has to be a blood sacrifice. That's alluded to in the Son of Man being lifted up. And that's what makes possible the forgiveness of sins. Again, why did Jesus come? Why did God give his Son? He gave his Son that each and every one believing in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life, that he should not be condemned, that his sins would be forgiven. And then we get to the ominous words of point be. This is the segue into the final three verses of our section. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's two points, quickly. Man's guilt was already established before Jesus came. I, I do believe Jesus' advent increases the guilt, magnifies the guilt, but it's not as though, had Christ not come, men would not be guilty. Look at, look at the end of chapter 3. John the Baptist's statement here. 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's, it's been there. It doesn't show up. It remains. It abides. That's the biblical teaching, that you and I, our sons and daughters, we come into this world with the wrath of God abiding over us justly, rightly. This links back to the serpent being lifted up. Only those Israelites who came to Moses and said, we have sinned, we've done wrong, please, please pray that the Lord might forgive us, were offered a pole with a serpent on it to look at. And only by looking at the sign of their judgment for their sin, the righteousness, the rightness, the fittingness of what they had done, would they be healed? So, so you and I, part of believing in Jesus, part of coming to Him by faith, is recognizing we deserve what happened to Him. That God's wrath rightly abides on us. That we def- we deserve it. We have each gone our own way. We have each rebelled in our hearts—not just a little bit, but totally. That we are through and through sinful. That that condemnation would be just. As the author of Psalm 130 said, O Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? And the answer, of course, is no one. No one. Man's guilt was already established before Jesus came. But unbelief in Christ demonstrates a person's guilt. Unbelief in Christ demonstrates a person's guilt. That's, That's the logic of verses 19 To 21 Let's just look at that briefly. In verses 19 to 21, we get the conclusion of the matter, the summary. This is the judgment. This is the end of the matter. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. What he's saying is the response to the light is predicated on something antecedent, something before. Because their works are evil... They, they didn't come to the light. See that? He says, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For, and then he explains that further, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Why do men and women hate the light? Why do they not come to the light? Because they do evil things and they love their evil deeds. Which is why the rejection of Christ proves Guilt. Only people who love darkness hate light. How much do they hate light? They run from it. They nail it to a tree. That's how much. So the one who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, by by virtue of God sending a Savior, now, by by virtue of God shining his light into this dark world, there's now two roads. There's two paths. Um, I trust as you're here this morning on Christmas day that you share a faith and a common love of the lord that you see in that child in the manger god's greatest gift to us his surpassing love for this dark world and in his life and in his death our life and our death and if that is true of you if you it can be said of you that you are one believing in him this text says that You've received life and not perishing. You've received no condemnation and forgiveness. On the other hand, if if you are not believing, you were guilty before you heard this message. You were guilty before Christ came. But if having heard this, heard what God has said, testified to in his son, you still do not believe. You, You only consolidate, amplify, and Pardon your guilt. That's the meaning of the incarnation. That's why God sent his son. God sent his son not fundamentally to give us an example, although he does serve as an example. God sent his son not fundamentally to enter into and share our experiences, although he he does as a sympathetic high priest. He cares for us. He sent his son fundamentally to die so that we might live. He sent his son... So that each and every one who is believing would not perish, but have eternal life. That, that is the nature of God's gift. We need to understand it rightly, receive him rightly, believe in him, and receive that gift. We're going to sing our closing song. I'm going to call the worship team up, and then I'll dismiss you. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we, we thank you for giving us your son, on our behalf, your first, your best, your dearest. You gave him to us that he might come, live among us, and die for us. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray that you would um, cause the love of him, of his light to well up within us, that we would not love our evil deeds more than the light of Christ that we might be those who would not perish, that we might be those who will not enter into judgment, but that we might have eternal life knowing you here and now. We Rejoice in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.